Tappers, what's up? It is the Monday edition of the Daily Tap. Hope everybody is doing well. Hope you had a great weekend. Another scorcher in Wisconsin. We are going to talk about the Milwaukee Bucks flipping this series and none of us caring how they flipped it. Uh, we'll talk about that. We'll also talk about why they flipped it, not just why Brooklyn didn't win the game, um, as I think a lot of people will nationally, and that's why you come here. Next, we'll talk about Aaron Rodgers, the complicated felligate. Uh, I guess we could call it felligate, maybe. Complicated gate. I don't know. Uh, hit the Avril Levine. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about just why Mark Murphy needs to shut up. Um, we'll also talk about the over protection of Aaron Rodgers as well. Lastly, we will talk about the Milwaukee Brewers and how hot they are. And if this version of the Brewers is the actual Brewers or the team we saw in the first, I don't know, 50 games. We'll talk about all that. It'll be an exciting show. I can't wait. I'm very excited to talk about the Milwaukee Bucks. And how could you not be, right? The Milwaukee Bucks win yet another game. It is 2-2. The series goes back to Brooklyn. We will have a game six in Milwaukee on Thursday night, which I expect the city to be on complete fire. I think it's it has been for at really every game. Uh, the fans have been incredible. Uh, it's been an, a sight to watch. Uh, yesterday, uh, I was in the Deer District for a little while with the Retro Daddy, his fiance, and Mitch, and it was absurd um, how many people were there, uh, just bearing down in the sun. Like I, I ended up like the reason I didn't do this podcast last night was because a I was like I, I don't think I was like sun. Like, I didn't think I got some poisoned, but I definitely was like too much beer, too many sun, and I just need to like go to bed. Like I went to bed at ten thirty, which is pretty early for your boy. Your boy doesn't usually go to bed that early, but I had to because it was just it tired me out, and I had stuff to do after I got home. Whatever, I'm not making excuses, and I know you guys. Some of you listen really early, some of you don't, but whatever. Here nor there, let's let's just continue with the Milwaukee Bucks. So yeah, the fan base was crazy. Everybody was on edge, wanting this win. The fans showed up in Game Three, and they showed up again in Game Four. And the Milwaukee Bucks were kind of teetering. Um, They're down eleven. Things look bad. We shake things up. We go to the deer from the Deer District to the Broad House. I've told you guys the Broad House. It's kind of our lucky spot. Um, we're two and zero. We're three and zero there now. Um, and we'll probably be back there for game six. If anyone wants to join us, we will be there for game six. Won't be there for game five, but we will definitely be there for game six. So it's become a lucky spot of ours. And as we're kind of walking over, we hear like the crowd, cause you could hear the crowd like from a lot far away. And I think it was after Middleton had hit his shot that it got fouled on. And then the bucks slowly start to come back. Now at this time was also when Kyrie's injury happened. So Kyrie's injury, which is important and a very big storyline to the series, and I want to talk about it a little later, it will take away from what the Bucks did in that run. What people are ignoring is the fact that the Milwaukee Bucks went small for the first time all series. For the first time all series, the Milwaukee Bucks actually went small and they it was really successful for them. They brought in a bunch of guys who were just active on defense. Pat Connaughton, I thought, played his best game of of the series. Like I thought Pat Connaughton was great in this one. I thought we know P.J. Tucker was an absolute animal on both sides of the ball. And the small ball bucks was were the reason they went on that 19-2 run. That was the precipice of everything. 
So yes, during that run, Kyrie Irving does go down with an injury. But the small ball of Milwaukee threw off Brooklyn. Brooklyn was not ready for the small ball. Everybody was asking for it. Everybody was asking for that lineup. And they finally did it. And they finally brought it out in game four. And it threw off Brooklyn entirely. Brooklyn was not ready for it. And that basically changed the entire aspect of this game. And it it changed the entire... You could argue it has changed the entire series. So I, I, I really think this is kind of this is kind of there. Like to add a note on Pat Connaughton, he was plus 17 in the first half. So they really they really were kind of this small ball lineup. And in this lineup of, you know, Connington in the starting lineup instead of Brooke Lopez, and just basically switching everything really affected Milwaukee or really affected Brooklyn. And so yes, Kyrie Irving goes down in that part, but the small ball of Milwaukee was a huge reason they won this game. And yeah, Pat, I would be surprised. I would be curious to know what Pat Connaughton's minutes end up being if he doesn't lacerate his eye. Like he got cut in the eye by a Joe Harris forearm. I'd be really curious to see what Connaughton's minutes would have ended up being in this game because he was a vital part to what Milwaukee was trying to do. And I know we've all had our frustrations with Pat Connaughton, but he was plus 23 for the entire game. He had the second highest PER, second highest plus minus, not PER, different thing. I get to do that all the time. He has the second highest uh, plus minus of the Bucks besides Giannis Antetokounmpo, who had a, a plus 29. P.J. Tucker was a plus 14. Chris Middleton was a plus 17 as well. So there were a lot of good Bucks moments in this game. And But the big story will be Kyrie Irving. How, how can it not be? He hurts his ankle, and he leaves the game, and he doesn't return. And now the... Brooklyn Nets did not really play well after Kyrie's absence. They missed 10 straight threes. They just could not really get anything going offensively. It was a lot of Durant save us. Um, No one really stepped up, uh, whether it was Joe Harris, whether it was Landry Shamit, whether it was Jeff Green. None of those guys sort sort of rose to the occasion. Blake Griffin also, who only played 25 minutes in this game, by the way, which was really weird. But there was a ton of Blake Griffin either. So none of these guys could really sort of find find that secret sauce and could really sort of be the difference maker along with Kevin Durant. And so Kevin Durant was on an island. And so a lot of people are coming and saying, all right, well, Brooklyn might lose the series because their guys got injured. And that's a shame. And they, they're not, the Bucks aren't as good as Brooklyn. Guess what? I will say this once and I will say it loud and clear. I do not give one flying fuck about who's better and who's not. I do not care. Because at the end of the day, injuries happen in sports. Injuries are a part of the game. No matter if it's basketball, baseball, lacrosse, hockey, I don't give one fuck. It is part of the game. And so I am not going to wring my hands and say, oh, well, Kyrie got hurt, so this is kind of a fraudulent Bucks team. You play to win the game. Herm Edwards told us that. And they, the Bucks came out, and they took advantage. And yes, at times they were a little bit flat, but they went out and they punched Brooklyn in the mouth in the second court, second half, and they blew them out. At one point, led by 17 points. And at any time that it looked like maybe, hey, it was teetering, the Bucks pulled it right back. 
They didn't allow Brooklyn to steal this game. They took the momentum and they got it. And now Brooklyn will have to decide, can they play with Kyrie in Game 5? I don't think Kyrie will play Game 5. I think he'll play Game 6. I think that he will play Game 6. Kyrie's a tough guy. Like, even though with all the woke shit and all the, the fraudulent Muhammad Ali bullshit that Kyrie likes to spew, he's still a tough son of a bitch. And I think Kyrie will end up being out there in Game 6. I don't think he'll play in Game 5. That's my personal prediction. I know absolutely nothing. I'm sure we'll hear more as the day goes on today. But Kyrie going out was not the single reason that the Bucs won this game. The Bucs won this game because they went small on Brooklyn. And what people have been calling for for the last three games, they brought out yet another wrinkle. And I know we all want to have Fire Bud and we all want Fire Bud as avatars and all this stuff. But give Mike Boonholzer and his coaching staff some credit here. Game number three, they completely throw Brooklyn off by basically mucking it up. By basically making it as ugly as possible and fighting on defense and really showing a physical side and a dog-like mentality and winning a gross basketball game by only scoring 86 points. And then the second game, they bring out a small ball lineup, continue that physical style, but combine it with a small ball and more three-point shots hit. And yet again, Brooklyn was held to under 100 points. You can say whatever you want about these fucking injuries. And you can say whatever you want about Durant and and all of it. But where it boils down to is the fact the Milwaukee Bucks are playing really good defense right now. And part of that is due to the coaching staff. And the coaching staff has really sort of enacted a physical knock you in the mouth. And they realize that Brooklyn is kind of soft. And they realize that Brooklyn does not really want this smoke. And that they've basically taken P.J. Tucker's attitude, his dog-like demeanor, and everybody's applying it. It's not just P.J. It is everybody else. And he is leading this team on defense. And then on offense, they're doing just enough. And the small ball stuff is going to throw off Brooklyn. And it did. And so I don't know if people just ignore this because of the Kyrie thing. But my take on this whole thing is that the small ball was the reason the Bucs won this game. And it was, and, and it, yeah, Kyrie had something to do with Brooklyn's, you know, way they shot the ball. But, but look, the Bucs held Brooklyn to 83 points with Kyrie and KD. 83 points. I can't believe more people aren't talking about that. You can say all you want about this being an ugly game. I get it, right? Game three was ugly. There were reasons to say, I don't think we can expect this again. And I'd said, well, maybe you muck it up and maybe that's how you get yourself back into this series and you just make it really ugly, gross basketball. The fact is, is that they still made it ugly. They still made it ugly defensively. They just started hitting more shots. It was a 107-96 game. I mean, the under lost by, I think the over-under was 228 in this game. And they finished they finished with 210 points. It was an 18-point difference. It wasn't as much of a discrepancy as the game three. But yet again, the Bucks played the way they wanted to. And Mitch said this to me as we were watching, and he goes, they're playing Bucks basketball today. And if we go all the way back to game two and to game one, and where I talked about how the Bucks were not playing their style of basketball. They were playing what Brooklyn wanted to do. 
And the and so the series has flipped for a lot of reasons. Kyrie's injury, the small ball of the Bucks, the adjustments they've made, the tenacity on defense. All of those things are reasons why the Bucks are now 2-2. And to, to not give the Bucks some credit here is ridiculous. And I understand that game three was a really weird game for a lot of people to get their hands around. But to not at least acknowledge the fact that the Bucks have made some real adjustments and that they're they're doing some different shit is is just so disappointing. But I think that's what's going to be in the national landscape. I think the national landscape will just talk about Kyrie's injuries. They'll talk about the Bucks' physical defense, and we'll get to that in a second because I I do think that's important as we start setting up Game Five and talking through Game Five. But it's just it it's the buck. It's much more than just the injury. That flipped this series. And yeah, now it's a brand new series. And who knows what the next week's going to bring. They could end up being the Bucks in six. Could end up taking seven. But I have more confidence in this team than I did last week. This team looked dead. This team came out flat somehow in game two. And looked like maybe this was all going to fall apart. And then this weird ass game in game three. You felt like things were starting to turn. And even with the in, before the injury, the Bucks had flipped flipped the sort of the scoring, and they were they had had an advantage. They had slowed down Brooklyn's offense by the small ball defense and small ball offense, and 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 everything's now changed, and we have a brand new series. The last thought on this is we get ready for game number five. So Steve Nash complained to the the media after the game, saying that. P.J. Tucker's defense was beyond basketball. That it was way too aggressive and was not necessarily what you expect in today's NBA. So Steve Nash, A, is a baby, but B, he's a smart guy. Because this is stuff we've asked Mike Boonholzer to do and he just refuses. Um, And in terms of getting the refs sort of heads turned to, to the player and to give your star a little more calls. Like it would be... It wouldn't be surprising if P.J. Tucker gets two quick fouls in game number five because the refs are kind of looking for it. And P.J. needs to know that. I don't want P.J. to not be a dog and not keep that physical ideology, but he needs to know that the refs could be hunting him after this sort of comments made by Steve Nash. But the comments by Nash also tell me that the Bucks are kind of getting into Brooklyn's head a bit. They're kind of... They're kind. This defense is not what they expected. They didn't expect this in-your-face, throw-it-in-you sort of style. And they are doing it. They're throwing it directly in their face. And they do not like it. They, they kind of think, how dare you stop our free-flowing offense? How dare you sort of put cogs in it and say, all right, you're not going this way. You're not going that way. And while Tucker defensively has been done well on Durant, no one's really saying how well Chris Middleton has done on Durant as well. Chris Middleton had some really good moments against Durant yesterday. And he is just as physical, adapting what Tucker, I think, brings to the court. And Middleton's a good two-way defender in his own right. But I, I think he t- took it up a notch. And I think part of that is Tucker. And Pat Connaughton had, what, two or three steals in this game where he picked out things out of there. So I think they are really frustrating Brooklyn with their defense. And so now Nash is trying to sort of get 
that free flow motion back as the Bucks have held them to 83 and 96 points respectively in the last two games. So we'll see what happens with the officials. I'm very scared. I, but I was scared today. We had Scott Foster, Ed Malloy, and Tony Brothers calling the game. I don't know if the Bucks have won a Tony Brothers playoff game. And Tony Brothers has had some major, major bad moments with the Bucks. But even though they probably called everything in the fucking sun in the third quarter, refs were all right. Like, I, I didn't look at this game and were like, the refs were ridiculous. I thought there were some moments where, like, they missed a push in the back from Blake Griffin, which if Steve Nash is going to say these things, to not acknowledge that Blake Griffin is as dirty as it gets is fucking just so ironic. And no one else probably will. Everyone will look at this because it's Kevin Durant and they'll talk about P.J. Tucker's defense nationally. But no one will talk about Blake Griffin just doing a few dirty things. Like Blake Griffin's shoulder block that he threw on P.J. Tucker, you could argue, was dirty. If you if you want to go there, like I don't think it was. I think it was basketball. I'm not that soft. I grew up in the 90s. I watched the NBA and NBC. But if you really want to go there, you could say what Blake Griffin did was dirty. You could The push in the back was definitely dirty. He has at least two or three of those games. So for Steve Nash to get on his high horse and say, all right, what P.J. Tucker did was borderline not defense, go fuck yourself, dude. Like, I understand you're trying to get more calls in game number five. But don't you, haven't you had enough? So we'll see what the refs do in game five. But if I were Bud, here's what I would do if I was Bud. If I was Bud, I would not put P.J. Tucker on Kevin Durant to start the game. I'd go with Chris Middleton. I'd put P.J. Tucker on... Joe Harris or Mike James or whatever, whoever they roll out. If Kyrie's playing, I'd put him on Kyrie. And I would just, I would kind of just keep PJ Tucker in sort of wait, ready and waiting like a dog in a cage and then unleash him at some point so that the refs who might have it baked in their head, all right, Nash wants a few more calls. Rich Kleinman, Durant's agent, I guess tweeted like, PJ Tucker should have 13 fouls. We are in their head. So again, to go back to my first part about how this win was much more than Kyrie's injury, we're breaking them a little bit mentally. And if you remember the conversation before this series started, Brooklyn had not faced adversity all year. They were just coasting along. It looked good on TikTok. They were doing all the shit. And their adversity was injuries, but they were figuring it out. And now they've dealt with their first hand of adversity and it doesn't seem like they can take it. So I cannot wait for game five. It's going to be great. I don't, I think, I don't know if Mitch and I are going to be watching it together. It's a late game now for Mitch. He works early, as you know, um, but we might be. Um, and if so, we will definitely try to do like a live thing after game five. Although I don't know. We did one live, we planned for one live thing and they got blown out by 49. So maybe maybe we can't plan that sort of thing. All right, let's talk about the other things happening in the state of Wisconsin for Mark Murphy, I, we talked about last week and talked about how Mark Murphy just needs to be more accountable and that Mark Murphy needs to own that he kind of screwed this whole thing up. And now a lot of this was Mark Murphy's fault. And so Mark Murphy was at a dinner of some sort over the weekend on Friday night. And he was talking to some Green Bay folks and goes, you know, he quotes Ted Thompson. 
and Ted Thompson's dead. If you you know he's he, so he's quoting a dead guy, and he says Aaron Rodgers is a complicated fella. That's what Ted said. Ted would say. And first of all, I, I don't know. I feel weird that he's using a Ted Thompson quote when Ted Thompson isn't here to talk about it. We don't know what Ted Thompson thinks of this whole situation because Ted Thompson is not with us, unfortunately. And who knows? Maybe if he was, this would be different and he'd be able to advise Brian Gunacus, who was who looked up to Ted. Was he was Ted was his mentor. So maybe this could be a little bit different. So kind of using his name, I wouldn't even say in vain. I think that's a little intense. But it, it's just definitely a little different, right? And it set off a firestorm. Before the Bucks game four, it was what everyone was talking about. It was the leading conversation on Saturday on Twitter. People talking about what that means, why he even said it. And I think where it comes down to it is, and I tweeted this out, like Mark Murphy just needs to shut the hell up. Like Mark Murphy needs to just not talk about this type of stuff. And it would be really great if Mark Murphy stopped acting like an owner. I've seen this a little bit, and I agree with it. And I've said this before. Mark Murphy thinks he owns the Packers. Mark Murphy thinks he's Jerry Jones. He thinks he's Arthur Blank. He's not. He doesn't own the team. He's the chairman. And if I were people on the Packers board, I would be trying like hell before shareholders to oust Mark Murphy. Mark Murphy has done a great job in terms of building Titletown. But Mark Murphy doesn't know what he's doing from a football perspective. He had Ted Thompson already in place when he took over. Ted was there. Ted built a strong team with guys like Gunacoust, Elliot Wolf, Russ Ball, John Schneider, I believe, was on that staff at that time. Um, I think there are some other guys who are who've moved on now to bigger roles at, at other teams. And so Mark Murphy was gifted that. And so then when Mark Murphy had to put the chips down, he let Mike McCarthy stay on for far too long and probably let Ted Thompson stay on for too long, if we're being honest. There were some signs that Ted might have been kind of going and the cognitive dissonance was not necessarily there for Ted. Yet Mark Murphy held on. He held on to Mike McCarthy, even when it kind of seemed like the team was tuning him out. And the Aaron Rodgers injury in 2017 was probably the worst thing that happened to that Packer team because it made people think that, oh, if Rodgers wasn't hurt, we would have made the playoffs. But the Packers were kind of broken by that. And so then he held on to do his job a year later, a year too long. And I guess it worked out because you got Matt LaFleur. I give Murphy credit there. He hired Matt LaFleur. That was a good hire. But he created this like triangle of power with LaFleur, Gutekust, and somehow Russ Ball was still going to be involved. And it hasn't really worked out because it led to Jordan Love being drafted without anyone talking to Aaron Rodgers. And not treating Aaron Rodgers like he's your star player and just treating him like another player on the roster. And playing a hardball with him for no real reason at all. And Mark Murphy talked about the divided fan base and talked about how everybody needs to come together. And yet Mark Murphy is going out there and and saying that Aaron Rodgers is complicated. He's not wrong. We've heard this from Greg Jennings. We've heard this from other teammates, right? Like there are former team, Jermichael Finley, but it's always those kind of guys, right? That want the attention. The The people that aren't in Aaron's circle will say this stuff about Aaron Rodgers. This isn't 
necessarily new information. That said, it's not the right time to be bringing this stuff up. I don't think Aaron Rodgers will be offended that he was called a complicated fella. But why throw gasoline on an already lit fire? Why try to not amend this relationship? And you talk about how you've flown to California and you've worked things out with Rodgers and you've tried to, to, to resonate with him. And then you're going out there and saying, well, he's kind of complicated. What the fuck? How, how does that help anything? So Mark Murphy needs to take a backseat. Mark Murphy need if he's going to be the chairman of this team, Mark Murphy needs to be non-existent. Mark Murphy needs to come to shareholders, give a speech, talk about how great it is to have the fans back. Don't mention anything about the team. Just say, it's great to have everybody back. We look forward to you guys enjoying Lodge Kohler, Titletown. Do all the, the masturbatory things to talk about how great Titletown is. And then go the fuck away. No one wants you here. And you're making it worse. Let Brian Gunacuz, let the adults in the room figure out how to fix this relationship. And whether it's a short-term fix or long-term fix, figure it out without Mark Murphy. Because all he's doing is hurting things. And I don't think Aaron Rodgers is going to get offended by a complicated fella. And if you're offended for Aaron Rodgers, you're soft. It's not that bad. He didn't say something terrible about Aaron Rodgers. He's right. He is complicated. It's more about the idea that he just needed to shut up. And he didn't. And now he needs to go away. But he won't. Because that's what Mike, Mark Murphy just Mark Murphy just keeps coming back. He, he's like a crypt keeper. He, just, he, does, he never actually really leaves. So that, that's the disappointing thing there. Let's wrap up the show with the Milwaukee Brewers. So the Milwaukee Brewers had yet another great week. Uh, they are able to sweep the Pittsburgh Pirates. They beat Cincinnati two out of three. The Brewers have won five of their last, well, no, they have five of their last six. I think it's actually more than that. It was nine of their last 10. They've won 16 of their last 20. They are red hot. I declared them on the on the blog a wagon. They are for sure a wagon. So I think there is some though that will say, all right, the Brewers are taking advantage of a weak schedule. We know this. We talked about it a few times on this show when they, when they were really hitting a rough patch. And I said, look, look at what their June to July is. If they're not leading the division by July fourth, we have bigger problems. I said that. I said that a few weeks ago, and it's already bearing true. If the Cubs could not be sort of doing their last dance Cubs thing, as it seems like Tom Ricketts is going to rebuild at any point now, that would be great. But the Cubs are playing really good baseball. They swept the Cardinals. They've been awesome at home. Uh, Wrigley being back to full capacity, I think, has really energized that team. And so the Cubs and Brewers are neck and neck. And they'll play each other in a few weeks, um, we could really have the Bucks in the conference finals and the Buck, the Brewers and Cubs going at it. And that will be a crazy stretch, I think, for everybody in Milwaukee. Because that series is going to matter. That'll be the first, I think, really big series of the year um, in a couple weeks. Now, things can go, go sideways. The Cubs could lose some games. They have to go on the road here. Um, and it's not going to be easy for them. So maybe things change a little bit. But you never know. You never know. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe the Cubs, Cubs keep it going. And so the wonder I think some will have is, is this Brewers team now, is this the team we expected all year? Or are they just taking advantage of a weak schedule? 
I actually think it's the former. I think, look, this Brewers team looked good on paper to start the year. They looked like a division winner. They looked like a team who could really kind of ascend. And Craig Council is a great manager. He's made the playoffs the last three years. I think he's one of the best managers in baseball. He doesn't get that credit, but he deserves it. And and he pulls all the right strings. And the fact that this Brewers bench is coming through because they're doing this, they're putting up runs without Travis Shaw, Lorenzo Cain, or Colton Wong in the last few weeks. And the Brewers have put up five-plus runs in, a, in, I think, almost all of their June games besides one. I'd have to go look fact-check that on my own. But they're, they are just... The offense has come alive. And the offense finally waking up is what you were waiting for. And that's all we knew the start of the year. We said, well, once this offense gets going, this Milwaukee Brewers team could really, really be a dominant force. And now they're looking the part. They're nine games over 500. In terms of that that five or more runs in the month of June, except for a 2-0 win against Arizona, they have put up at least five runs and a 7-3 loss to Cincinnati. They've put up at least five runs. So 11 of 13, yeah, 10 of 12 games, the Brewers have five or more runs. And they did lose one of those to Detroit. But they're still like, their offense has looked great. And they're doing it without their main guy, some of their main guys. Now it helps Christian Yelich is on a hot streak. It helps that Avisail Garcia and Omar Nervaez should be all-stars. I don't know if they'll make it because the Brewers are going to have a lot of pitching all-stars. But Nervaez and Garcia deserve to be all-stars. They are playing great baseball. And that helps. Dan Vogelbach is on a heater. And it looked at one point like Dan Vogelbach might not make it for the full season. And Dan Dan has been great hitting that second spot. Luis Urias is a legit leadoff hitter. We know Willie Adamas has you know infused the, this Milwaukee Brewers lineup uh, with his energy and just big hits. And not afraid to have, have a moment here and there. And the, the Brewers just keep getting it done. And it, it, we're at the point now where it feels like the Brewers are going to win every game. And they lose a game, it's surprising. And when that happens with your baseball team, it's really fucking fun. And it's really exciting to watch this team. And since they, the baseball announced they're cracking down on the, on the sticky stuff, we haven't seen remnants of it for the Brewers. You know, Woodruff spin rates were kind of the same against Arizona. And then he had a really good start uh, against Pittsburgh on Friday night. Like he didn't strike out a ton. He only struck out five, but he went seven innings. He pitched pretty well and he only allowed two runs. And Pirates got a couple after the fact um, in that eighth inning after Woodruff was out. Yes, Corbin Burns struggled uh, on Saturday, but look, their bad starts are going to happen. I'm kind of waiting for Freddie Peralta's blow-up start. Like, I, I just think that at some point he's going to have have one too. It's part of baseball. These guys have been so good for the entire year that they're going to have blips on the radar. It's how they respond. So I'll be very curious to see how Corbin Burns does in Coors Field. That's not going to be easy, but he's going to be in Coors Field, and we'll see how he does there. We'll see how he responds. But even when they were down 4 nothing in that game, I didn't freak out. I didn't panic. I didn't say, oh my God, this this is they're screwed. Because they weren't. 
They've been so good recently that 4 nothing against the Pittsburghs did not feel insurmountable, and it wasn't. They came back, they had a huge fourth inning, and they, they flipped that game. And that's another thing with this Brewers sort of hot streak and what has been different is they've found big innings again where it's not just a guy hits a solo home run. It's like, so take the sixth inning is a great example of this. Uh, yesterday's game that they won 5-2. to two. Weicho hits a triple, drives in a run. Brewers are then tied 2-2. Two to two. And then obviously El Garcia hits a two-run homer. And so there you go. And, and that's... And and that's that big inning stuff, and and that was and that wasn't even that big of an inning, you know the one on Saturday where I, I think they what they how many runs did they get in that inning, I think they had a few, and then in the Friday game they also had a, had a big inning, so those big innings put up five runs in the fourth inning, and then they did not score the rest of the way, but no one scored the rest of the way. Pittsburgh scored four runs in the first two innings, and the Brewers scored seven unanswered. And they won this baseball game. And they kept chipping away. And that, that was great. And then on Friday, the Brewers also had a five-run inning. So Brewers have had multiple run innings in the last three games. And that's been part of the thing driving their success. And yes, Cincinnati's good. Cincinnati you know, got to take advantage of a Rockies team that can't win on the road to save, them, save their soul. So yet again, the Reds are coming in hot to play the Brewers. But the Brewers, I think, are just a more talented team. And you get to see Vlad, Vladimir Guerrero, Gutierrez today for the second time. I think that will help things out, right? I think seeing him a second time might be a little bit of a difference maker as Gutierrez has not faced a team for a second time yet since being called up. Then you'll have Luis Castillo on Tuesday, who's been an absolute disaster all year. But he is facing Brett Anderson, who's a lot of questions probably about Brett as well. And then Freddie Peralta versus Tyler Molly. Now, Tyler Molly's been great this year. He's been really special, uh, kind of the ace of their staff. So that will be quite the pitcher's duel on Wednesday. So definitely, if they can get off on the right foot tonight, that would be great. Um, and keep it going. Keep things rolling and keep winning series. The, the last series the Brewers didn't win, or at least have, was the can was it the Kansas yeah they they got swept by Kansas City so really since May 21st when they were 21 and 23 got blown out the Brewers since that time right 17 and 4 pretty good you like to see that all right that does it for our Monday show we'll be back tomorrow we'll talk Brewers we'll talk any Bucks residuals and anything else that comes through the hopper. All right, take care, guys. Have yourself a great Monday. We'll be back tomorrow. Bye.